Hello everyone, welcome to Antibodies. This is our 31st buddy sode, a segment where we discuss research papers with the first or last authors of the article. Joining me today is Natalie Graham from the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. How are you doing, Natalie? Oh, life is good. How about you? I am very excited today because the article we're discussing is titled Six Distinct NF-kappa B Signaling Codons Convey Discrete Information to Distinguish Stimuli and Enable Appropriate Macrophage Responses. This paper is coming from the lab of Dr. Alexander Hoffman from UCLA. And the first author in this paper is Dr. Adewunmi Adilaja, who is here with us today to discuss the article. Welcome to Antibodies, Adewunmi. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Reading this paper reminded me of my first year of graduate school. Do you guys know why? Did you work on NF-kappa-B? No, not, not the guys. I wish that was the reason it reminded me, but it's because it used to take me days to finish one paper in my first year. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this paper gave me that feeling. Uh, just before we get into the nitty gritty of the paper, uh, Natalie, can you tell us something about our guest today? All right, well, uh, our guest today, Ade, um, actually is an MD PhD. That's so pretty cool. Um, and like we said, he got his PhD under the supervision of Dr. Alexander Hoffman uh, at UCLA. Um, I know about Alexander Hoffman because he came from the uh, Dave Baltimore lab. So super immunology uh, like lineage right there. Um, based on his rec recent work, I would describe Ade as an expert of NF-kappa B biology in macrophages and dendritic cells. So. You have an MD, PhD, and this work is definitely borderline computational. What made you interested in this unique line of work in the first place? So, thank you, Natalie, for that question. So one of the things I like about the computational aspect is it allows you to abstract away from the biology, in a sense, and really able to apply general principles. So the things that we learn from one discipline, we can apply to a particular discipline, and we can make a lot of discoveries that way. And as you know, there's a lot of progress in the information technology field and in just tech in general. And it's nice to be able to use all those tools that have developed and have refined over the, over the years and be able to use it to solve particular problems in biology. Very cool. That is pretty cool. I, I think this would be a statement that I could make 10 years back and it should still be true that interdisciplinary work is the future. I think computational biology it's so much integrated in everything like immunology even microbiology that you just can't ignore it anymore and i guess even if you don't work on it you should still have the basic skill set to be able to understand this this these works all right uh natalie you know what else this paper could be called hit me with it it could be called 50 shades of nf kappa b <laughs> <laughs> it it's more like six, but uh, I'll give it to you. <laughs> six shades, yeah, that's even better. Why don't I think of that? <laughs> okay, that's do you, funny. Yeah, Nelly, do you want to take the terminology section? Yeah, so we've got a couple of terms that we should run through just before, you know, digging into the meat. Um, in this paper, you're using kind of as a model this Sjogren's syndrome 
Could you define what this is? Yes, thank you. Uh, Sjogren's syndrome is an autoimmune uh, disorder where you have uh, T cells attack uh, lacrimal cells, uh, which produce tears. And you also attack salivary glands, which obviously produces saliva, and they also attack other tissues. Uh, they attack the pancreas, they can attack uh, uh, the lungs, but they're classically known to attack the, the lacrimal glands and the salivary glands, so your tear ducts get affected by this disease, and you have dry eyes, and it's very, very dry, and it's very irritating, and then you also can't really eat well because you don't produce a lot of saliva, it's hard to swallow, so it's a very, it can be a very devastating disease. Yeah, uh, for all those undergrads out there, uh, this is spelled like S-J-O-G-R-E-N, but it's pronounced Sjogren, so like, don't embarrass yourself like I have previously in the past. <laughs> um, also, um, so when we're looking at, you know, the pathology of Sjogren and, and then like how it's developed, you might want to use GWAS studies, uh, which stands for Genome-Wide Association Studies. Could you tell us more about this? Yes, certainly. Uh, GWAS is a very useful tools that we can use to study populations, and we can use them to find particular risk alleles for certain diseases. So you can study a huge population, and you can find that uh, in, the, in this subset of in this subset that has this particular disease, they tend to have an expression of this particular allele compared to others. So you actually need very very large sample sizes to pick up alleles that have very small effect sizes. Very cool and. That's why it's just like a million people sequenced and a million different diseases, you know, categorized. All right. And so uh, then the big protein that we're going to be talking about today, NF-kappa-B. And I always knew this as the central mediator of inflammation. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, certainly. NF-kappa-B stands for a nuclear factor, uh, kappa-B, uh, because it was discovered as a nuclear factor that regulated uh, kappa-B light chain synthesis in B cells. So that's what it was described as initially, but then it was found to regulate a lot of inflammation. So it produced a lot of the different cytokines that we associate with you know, symptoms of being ill and signs of being uh, ill and a variety of uh, different effects. Uh, it's uh, pro-survival as well. So it, it has many activities in a variety of uh, different areas in biology. So uh, what kind of, what turns this transcription factor on? Like what stimulates uh, NF-kappa B? So that's the interesting thing about NF-kappa B. It's stimulated by a variety of different things specifically pathogens and different components of pathogens. Uh, so it can, it can be stimulated by RNA, DNA, it can be, and uh, cell wall components of bacteria, from gram-positive bacteria cell wall components to gram-negative bacteria cell wall components. It can be stimulated by parasites, so a variety of different pathogens. And cytokines also activate NFKB. So TNF and IL-1 also activate NFKB, and they're also uh, end product of NFKB activation. Wow, so we got like a feedback loop in there. Yeah. So it wouldn't be biology if this was a clean, perfect system, right? So uh, NF-kappa B is also kind of intrinsically tied into a couple of other pathways, right? Like MAPK, SIG signaling. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So being a transcription factor, it's able to interact with other transcription factors combinatorially. So one of the main transcription factor families it tends to interact with are the IRF families of transcription factors, IRF3 mm -hmm. being an example, IRF5 being another example, and also uh, MAP kinase uh, transcription factors. Very cool. Um, so NF-kappa B, obviously very, very important in immunology because it's doing like everything. So what what's crazy about it and maybe like a central feature of this paper is that 
it's so abundant, but it's still doing different things. Like I'm looking at, you know, just a figure offline and it can turn on anti-apoptotic factors, cell cycle regulators, cytokines, chemokines, adhesion molecules, just about everything. So uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, certainly. So like, you can produce cytokines like TNF and R1 alpha that I mentioned, R1 beta cell that I mentioned out, uh, earlier, which raises fever which and also regulates adhesion molecules, which allows for the recruitment of different types of immune cells into the tissue. So you can get neutrophils in there, you can get T cells in there, B cells in the tissue, and it can also be uh, activated in, in cancer cells, which makes them less susceptible to cell death, which makes them more resilient. So it, it has a variety of uh, uh, different effects, and it can also uh, produce a lot of uh, metalloproteinases and also uh, other enzymes that degrade tissue. So in, a, in an inappropriate context, it can actually have widespread tissue destruction as a result of NF-kappa activity. What's funny about NF-kappa B is that, yeah, like Natalie, what you said, it's abundant. Every every pathway has some connection to NF-kappa B. Even lymphocyte receptors, at some point, they signal through NF-kappa B. But the fact that there is still some unique information being passed down, and I guess that's, again, coming back to this paper. That's what this paper is going to talk about. But I have always been wondering, I think, Natalie, we've also had this conversation. How does this do different yeah. things? <laughs> well, it's a good thing we're, we're going to go through this paper, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, you guys uh, use a very computational angle in this paper. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, and that involves algorithms. First of all, I didn't even know that Al Gore had rhythm. But, uh, <laughs> he invented the anyway. internet, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit more about like a supervised versus an unsupervised learning algorithm? Certainly. So I'll start with unsupervised. So unsupervised, it basically means that you don't have a label. It's just a way of organizing a variety of uh, different things. So you can look around your room and find things that look similar and put them in the same location. You can organize mm -hmm. them by some characteristic. Uh, with supervised learning, you're trying to understand a mapping between uh, two things. So if you're trying to teach a toddler the name of things, you know, this is a piece of apple, this is a, a piece of orange, this is a banana. You're, you're teaching them how to make those associations. So that's what supervised learning is. You have an example and you have a label on it. And then later on, you can test them with a new uh, sample that they haven't seen before to see if they can generalize. That's pretty amazing because I think if you just taught toddlers the names of fruits and then showed them a new fruit, they would not be able to name it. <laughs> yeah, but they can tell you it's a fruit. Yeah. They, they can, they can. Yeah. <laughs> but that's also the part of supervised learning that they will only be able to tell the name of the fruit that they have already been taught, not a new fruit. Right. So you would have to show them an orange again and say, is this an orange? Can you tell me if it's orange? And the toddler probably will. Right. And if you give them a, yeah. show them a tangerine, yeah. they don't know the name, you'd expect them to guess more likely orange versus, say, an apple, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah so, that's a good point. Yeah. So um, last thing we want to talk about is a dynamical feature. So I didn't even know dynamical was a word. I thought it was just dynamic. But uh, So what is this? So dynamical feature is basically trying to distinguish uh, a, a specific characteristic of a feature that is the temporal component of a feature. So if something is static, it doesn't change with regards to time. If it's dynamic, it changes with regards to time. So there are certain aspects of NFP activity that vary with regards to time, which is very interesting because it has a whole new dimension to its function, right? It's a whole you know, fourth dimension, so to speak. 
So we can look at how, how it's moving over time, how its activity changes over time. And this is something that's very interesting with technology because previously we didn't have the ability to be able to make assays that have a temporal components uh, to them. So with the, with the increase in uh, technological progress, we can actually assess this whole new dimension and it can provide new avenues to be able to target NFKB in a more stimulus-specific manner because we, we talked about earlier, NFKB, it's, in, it's involved in a variety of different pathways. So if we can modulate its temporal activity, we can have more specificity. Mm -hmm. Very cool. All right, do you want to take the intro, Jatin? Yeah, thanks a lot for that terminology. That was perfect. That was the perfect start for getting into this paper. Autoimmune diseases are characterized by the presence and, uh, of unwarranted activation of immune cells. However, we still don't know how it all begins. What is the etiology? All we can do is make associations with different genetic and phenotypic parameters and try to figure out what might be the cause. In this paper, the authors are setting out to solve one piece of this puzzle with Sjogren's syndrome or SS as a prototypic organ-specific autoimmune disease. Interestingly, GWAS studies in SS patients do not point towards defects in lacrimal or salivary components but towards potential defects in the immune system. One of such associations is made with some NF-kappa-B genetic variants. What's intriguing is that if you recapitulate some of these NF-kappa-B variants found in humans in mice, they start to show a SS-like disease. What we do not know is how are these NF-kappa-B variants are doing what they are doing in the context of disease. So, to study the NF-kappa-B activation, the authors are using a mouse strain that expresses RELA, it's spelled as R-E-L-A, the gene that codes for one subunit of NF-kappa-B, alongside a fluorescent reporter called M-Venus. This mouse strain is called M-Venus RELA, and all the cell types that are actively expressing NF-kappa-B would also express M-Venus so it's easy to visualize where the protein is inside the cell. The fun thing about this reporter system is that you can track the location of NF-kappa-B in real time, in single cells. That would allow you to do some crazy analysis on this protein on a per cell basis. The next question we should ask is, which type of shell, the cell the author should focus on? For that, let's see what type of cells most readily utilize NF-kappa-B. As Natalie and Addy were talking about, NF-kappa-B lies downstream of many things, out of which pattern recognition receptors are one of, those, one of those. And macrophages, they become a good model to study NF-kappa-B since macrophages express a variety of pattern recognition receptors. The authors use the information theoretic approach, we're going to get to that, to identify parameters that affect the type of NF-kappa-B signaling. There's going to be a lot of computational modeling in this paper, so we'll try our best to break it down. To start with, uh, Ade, can you tell us what this information theoretic approach implies? What does that mean in English to us non-computational folks? Certainly. So information theoretic approach is very useful uh, framework to really understand communication. And it's been it's been used for many, many years, it was developed back in the 1940s 
for telecommunications analysis. And the way I think about it is if you have, if you're trying to represent an image and you have to describe an image to somebody, how would you describe it? How many words does it require to describe it? You can say, well, a picture, you know, is a, a, a picture is a thousand words, right? So if you have a picture of a blank wall, of a white wall, and you were to describe it, you just have, say, picture, white wall. You could represent it with a black and white photo, and all you have to do is just say black and have the values that correspond, the pixel values that correspond to that, and you can have white and have the pixel values that correspond to that. And if it's all white, you can just say all, all one to the end. So it doesn't take a lot of inf information to represent that. But if you take a picture of the last fancy dinner that you had that you posted on Instagram, it's going to be more difficult to represent that because you have a variety of different colors and you can have a lot of different pixel locations that correspond uh, to each color. So you can have red, green, blue, and you have different locations that correspond to that. And one way to actually assess this is to take those pictures, compress them to PNG or JPEG, and actually look at the file sizes. You notice that for a simpler picture, it takes a lot less space because it takes less information. So why information theory is so useful is that you can actually learn the amount of information that's present and the amount of information that's necessary to describe it to someone else. So that's why it's useful for NFB analysis because we're trying to assess how much information is described by NFRB about the stimuli in the environment that actually makes it to the nucleus. So information theory is very, very, very useful in terms of compression. It's very useful in terms of uh, information transduction and actually quantifying how much information can go through a particular channel. So uh, one example is if you're watching a video and you have it, at, uh, let's say on YouTube, and you have it at 4K and you notice it's not loading, it's buffering, you can just keep reducing it to 1080p, 720p, and 480p. And once it's at 480p, then you know, okay, I don't have a strong signal. My signal is only good enough to get me 480p. And obviously a 480p video has less information. You're less able to distinguish the things in the in the image. You're saying it's, wow. it, it's like it allows you to get the most information about something with the least amount of, let's say, words or least amount of, least words, yeah. It's, a, it's a, a way of quantifying the amount of information that's present mm -hmm. that you're trying to transmit. So if you're trying to transmit, uh, let's say, for example, we are trying to play a game, right? Mm -hmm. And we're, the goal of the game is to be able to guess the answer. And let's say we have a yes or no question. If I say it's not no, so by definition, you know, it's, you're, you're sure about the answer. But yep. so I only need to give you one bit of information, right? To be, mm -hmm. to be able to get the answer. But let's say it's a multiple choice question, uh, A through D, and I tell you it's not C or D. I gave and you one bit of information. Choices. You have two yeah. choices. And if I tell you it's not B, then you know yeah. for certain it's A. So you need two bits of information to be able to distinguish between four different options. And you need one bit of information to be able to distinguish between two options. So that's a way of quantifying information. Oh. So it's your reduction in uncertainty. So to give you the answer about a multiple choice question and to give you two bits of information, <laughs> right? So that's how we, we, we measure it. So it's very useful in terms of trying to see how well 
NFQRB can represent the information that about the environment that, that can reach the nucleus because a variety of different ligands and receptors can activate NFQRB. But how much overlap exists? How well can it distinguish between different ligands? It's a very hard to be able to assess without using an information theory paradigm. And you said this was developed in like communications? Yeah, it was developed by uh, uh, Claude Shannon back in uh, the 1940s at Bell Labs. That's really cool. So like one thing I do like about reading computational papers is that sometimes they'll be like, oh yeah, this is a model from like economics. This is a model, you know, from, you know, population ecology. And I think that that um, interdisciplinary edge really shows off in this yeah. sort of uh, science. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Addy. I don't, I don't think I'll ever forget information theoretic approach in my life. <laughs> okay. My pleasure. So, so we come down to the results. The authors sought to study the temporal patterns, that is, features related to time of nuclear NF-kappa-B in primary macrophages in response to prototypical immune threats at a single cell resolution. The authors differentiated macrophages taken from our NF-kappa-B reporter mice and stimulated them with a variety of ligands and different doses and they trace the amount of nuclear NF-kappa-B fluorescence at a single cell level. Using an automated image processing pipeline, they were able to track the distribution of NF-kappa-B at the level of uh, cytoplasm and segmentation in the cytoplasm. The authors tested different stimuli including TNF and four pat uh, PAMPs that activated different TLR ligands, including CPG for TLR9, PAM3CSK4 for TLR1 and 2, LPS for TLR4, and PolyIC for TLR3. Each stimuli tested at four to seven concentrations in about 300 to 600 single bone marrow-derived macrophages. In each conditions, the cells were examined to evaluate their NF-kappa-B trajectories, which evaluates, which eventually led to capturing more than 3 million cell images and the associated NF-kappa-B activity data points. With this ton of data, the authors classified the stimuli related to a nuclear or cytoplasmic location of the NF-kappa-B in three different categories based on the stimuli, of course. First would be unresponsive, second would be responsive but non-oscillatory, and third would be oscillatory again with respect to the NF-kappa-B oscillations in and out of the nucleus. What they find is that TNF is the only ligand here that causes oscillatory behavior in NF-kappa-B while other PAMPs result, resulted in non-oscillatory behavior. Moreover, the oscillatory or non-oscillatory behavior also depended on the dosage of the ligand. So Ade, if I understand this figure correctly, what this means is that the cell responds to TNF and PAMPs in distinct ways. And one of this distinct way is the nuclear oscillations in NF-kappa-B that are specific to TNF. Is that a correct interpretation? Very close, so just a minor uh, clarification. Most of the TLR ligands do not produce NFKB oscillations at higher doses. Mm -hmm. uh, Poly-IC tends to produce NFKB oscillations at all doses that we've tested, mm -hmm. all the way up to 100 micrograms uh, per ml. 
So no matter what the dose is, PolyIC only produces oscillations. The same for TNF. Oh, so but the other ligands, mm -hmm. the ones that induce mid-88, uh, TLR2, TLR4, TLR9, they induce uh, oscillations at intermediate doses. And at high doses, they have non-oscillatory dynamics. Okay, so this oscillatory, like you were talking about the bits, this oscillation would be one bit of information that allows me to uh, narrow down on what this ligand could be, right? Exactly. Okay. So we can use that. We will talk a little bit more about it uh, mm -hmm. a little later. We can use uh, an algorithm to be able to see how we can use these features to be able to separate and distinguish the different features uh, or the different ligands from one another. Just okay. using NFKB, NFKB dynamics alone. We're not talking about the other transcription factors mm -hmm. that it can interact with, but just looking at NFKB's activity alone. And we can see that we can do that with a, a high degree of uh, specificity. So just to uh, just to go back a little bit, so TNF produces oscillations at all doses, all I see at all doses. Uh, the other ligands at intermediate doses, they produce oscillations, and at high doses, no oscillations. So we have sort of a, a, a binary classification, or we, we bin into two options, oscillation or not oscillation. That's one bit of information that gets conferred. Mm -hmm. But there's also some, uh, some redundancies in some of the different features. And okay. we can talk about more a little later. All right. So to summarize this figure, whether or not NF-kappa B oscillates in and out of the nucleus, it depends on the type of ligand and the dose of ligand. And the oscillatory behavior is one of the dynamical feature that the authors have described for NF-kappa B. Uh, Natalie, do you want to take on the results from here on? Uh, sounds great. So now we're into figure two. In order to analyze more in depth, the authors develop a method for identifying more dynamical features that are associated with the stimulus and dose-specific NF-kappa B trajectories. So you guys constructed a multivariate information algorithm based on different estimates of channel capacity. So could you please explain to our audience, as well as myself, what is channel capacity? Certainly. So channel capacity is formally defined as the maximal mutual information between two variables. Just what's the maximum amount of information variable X can tell me about variable Y. But what does that actually mean? Right? It, the best analogy for it is bandwidth. So channel capacity is a rate. It's the maximum amount of information that can go through per unit of time. So in this case, we're assuming a single use of the channel. So when you're trying to get a data plan, for example, if you're, you want to get a, a very large data plan, a very fast internet connection, it depends on how many people are in your household and what types of things are you trying to watch. So if everyone is streaming Netflix at 4K, then you're going to want a bigger bandwidth, you know, mm -hmm. more megabits per second. Or if you, or you can get like a fiber optics where you can stream more things. So the bigger the channel capacity, the more information you can pass through without losing uh, signal degradation. So it's like comparing 4G to 3G to 2G or edge. So with each subsequent G's generations, you have more bandwidth. There are more things you can do. Back in the day when we had those flip phones, you couldn't really stream Netflix because we didn't have the bandwidth to pass that information through with the wireless uh, technologies that we had. But then we had 4G and now we can actually stream movies in 4K or 1080p. So channel capacity is just a way of measuring the amount of information that a channel can uh, transmit. Okay, I guess that makes total sense. You wouldn't put LA traffic down like a dirt road. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> okay. So 
using different parameters, including integrals, derivatives, derivatives, peak activities, durations, frequencies, the authors could get all the information to define the dose response with, you know, TNF, CPG, and polyIC. By analyzing these data, the author authors could identify 918 derived features that could be used to define the NF-kappa-B signaling. Out of all of these 918 features, six dynamical features stood out as they were most suitable to understand uh, the ligand and dose response. So there was one, speed of activation, two, peak amplitude, three, cumulative activity at a later time point, four, oscillatory or non-oscillatory behavior, and five, total duration of NF-kappa-B activity above a certain threshold, and C, the degree to which NF-kappa-B is distributed towards the early time points versus later time points. So in this result, we're trying to break down the NF-kappa-B signal into simplified fragments or dynamical features that, when combined, would be able to define the NF-kappa-B signal in its entirety. How do you think this would help in the context of understanding an inflammatory disease? Certainly. So the utility of this is that we can work at different levels of, of abstraction. So as mm -hmm. in organisms, we have, we have to be able to work at the most useful level of abstraction. So for example, take our visual system, right? We can detect light waves, uh, right? But it's not very useful if I'm describing a picture or a shirt and I say it's at, you know, 650 nanometers, right? Or 651 or 652 nanometers. It's not something that's useful to communicate. But if I say it's red, it's a more useful term, right? But it's less precise because it could be 651 nanometers or 650 or 656 or whatever. But the most useful aspect of it is red. So naturally, our sensory systems discretize a lot of continuous information into, into the most useful elements. And the reasons we have, you know, three groups of colors is because we have three cones in our eyes that detect, you know, the three intervals of colors. So that's the most useful part of that feature. So we can also translate that particular paradigm into uh, dynamical systems in transcription factor activation dynamics. So knowing the, the abundance of NFKB in the nucleus at 18 minutes and 45 seconds is not exactly useful in terms of trying to figure out the biological implication of it. But knowing that a long duration of NFKB activity can cause a lot of disease, a lot of uh, autoimmune disorders. So we know, for example, what, that certain negative feedback regulators control the duration of NFKB activity. And when there's some, uh, so there's some damage or some haploinsufficiency of those negative regulators like A20, you can have a lot of inflammation, a lot of arthritis, and we know that that's a causative agent and that we know that duration is very important for the decoding of NFKB activity and has autoimmune implications. We also know that if you have a lot of NFKB activity, for example, if you have a lot of E. coli in, in your system, you're going to activate a lot of TLR4 and TLR9 and you're going to have a high abundance of NFKB activity in the nucleus. And we know that's going to have some implications in terms of being septic and having a lot of, lots of fever. So we know that certain aspects of the features are have been shown to be useful and we know the mechanisms and we know how they're decoded. So once we figure that out, we can find which features to focus on, the salient features. And that's what we did. That's just like 
you collect all the data you can and then you just boil it down to the essence of NF Kappa B. It's like It's like <laughs> doing a word cloud, and, right? <laughs> yeah, or like yeah, like I think abstraction in art, you know, you only really need, you know, one very robust, beautiful line to to give the feeling, the essence of, you know, whatever image you're trying to give. You don't have to give all the three-dimensional thing to be like, oh, this is a cat, you know? <laughs> yeah, and another interesting anyway. thing is like, if you heard of the German word uh, schadenfreude. Mm-hmm. Oh, dude, yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't have one word for that in English, but they have it for that in German, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need a lot of different words to communicate that idea. Yeah. You just need one for- good word or one good feature. For our non-sadistic listeners, Schadenfreude is taking joy in another's misery. So, <laughs> <laughs> only for the non-sadistic audience. The sadistic audience, they probably already know that. So. <laughs> oh, and I guess the non-sadistic Germans that just speak German, basically. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Overall, these data indicate that there are true differences in the signal processing characteristics of the receptor-associated signaling pathways, and you were able to boil them down to some nice, useful uh, little little niblets. All right, Natalie, thanks for that. Also, I will just highlight the fact that you had 918 features to choose from, and if I got this correctly, let me know. So you have these six features, and if I'm if I'm thinking in the in the same language as you've been speaking, so these six features have the most bandwidth, or they provide the most of the bandwidth that these 918 have, right? Something like That's that. That's correct. It's like okay. if you have an essay that you have a word limit on your abstract mm-hmm. that you're submitting for a conference, it's at 300 words, but you just wrote something that's 500 words, mm-hmm. and you try to delete some of the words. Or uh, that, in a way, to minimize the amount of information loss that you have, mm-hmm. you want to keep as much information as necessary. And then, you know, there are certain words you can't delete. Sometimes you can, you know, skip some words and still retain the meaning of the sentence. Right. So, you know, the nouns and the verbs are going to be the most useful ones. If you delete them, you're going to lose a lot of meaning. But you can delete certain adverbs or certain adjectives without losing a lot of information in what you're trying to communicate. So that kind of corresponds to this particular analysis. There are certain features that have a lot of information in them. So they, they they encapsulate a lot of different aspects. So part of that 918 are very, very high precision measurements, mm-hmm. like the derivative at a particular time point. How quickly did NFKB change from five to 10 minutes after stimulation? Or how much NFKB is in the nucleus 10 hours after stimulation, right? But a feature like the total duration or the area underneath the curve, the integral of the activity, they encapsulate a lot of information. It's kind of like short and Friday. <laughs> it encapsulates a lot of information. <laughs> or like the word overmorrow. You know, if you don't want to say the day after tomorrow, you know, it's probably it's overmorrow. <laughs> so it, there are certain words that have a lot of information in them. So you can, you can just focus on those words. And we, we all kind of sort of do it as scientists anyway. We have to pick keywords. For your, mm-hmm. for, your, for your manuscript, you pick the words that paint the clearest picture that really encapsulate the key things you're trying to communicate. Uh, first, I've never heard of the word overmorrow. Is this something new? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I randomly ran into it. I was like, this is a very useful word that we should That's use more actually in like- language. Like an ancient word, not right. ancient. It's from like the medieval period, right? Like- yeah. <laughs> And second, I, I love your analogy about the abstract. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Keeping just the things that are relevant without losing too much information. Right. 
Okay, so with that we can move to the next result and I may have spoiled it a little bit, but well, we'll still go with it. Uh, the six features <laughs> we have identified so far that convey most of the information about the extracellular stimulus to the nucleus are being termed as the NF-kappa-B signaling codons by the authors. Uh, before we go into this result, I have a question. Ade, I have always associated the name codon to the three nucleotide code. And in fact, when I first read about the title of the paper, I assumed there were specific codons in the sequence of NF-kappa-B that might be relaying a different signal. Do you think this terminology could create a confusion because here you're referring to the dynamical features of the NF-kappa-B signaling like peak amplitude oscillatory behavior as the signaling codons, but this is different from a traditional meaning that exists in biology. So that's an interesting, interesting question there. So our aim was to have a very succinct and concise description of what these things are, right? That contains the most inf information. And basically, in order to learn, you have to be able to associate with something that you've seen before. Like we mentioned, you know, tangerines and oranges earlier. You know, uh, a toddler is more likely to associate uh, a call a tangerine an orange if they don't if they've never seen a, a tangerine before. They don't know the name for it. Versus calling it an apple, right? Or call it, call it an orange instead of an apple, I should say. So, everyone in biology is familiar with the term codons. Right? It's, we all learned it at an at a early age in high school. So trying to find a, a corollary in signaling dynamics is something that's important. And we're trying to find a way for people to make that association. We're trying to communicate that there's some discrete features that encapsulate a lot of information, right? And that they are essential to be able to communicate information about the extracellular environment of a macrophage to the nucleus and that these are very essential features and they're sort of the building blocks of information. Okay. So you can call them code words, but that's not a word we're familiar with, yeah. like overmorrow. <laughs> uh, so codons are, are, is a word that we are familiar with. All right. So coming back to the paper, let me rehash the six signaling codons that Natalie was talking about. The speed of activation, peak of amplitude, cumulative activity at a later time point, oscillatory or non-oscillatory behavior, total duration of NF-kappa-B activity above a certain threshold, and the sixth one, degree to which NF-kappa-B is distributed towards the early time points versus later time points. The authors wanted to see if these six codons can accurately be used to predict the kind of ligand that the cell was activated with. Think of this way. If you were given just information about the six codons that we mentioned, could you guess which ligand was the cell stimulated with? Like was it TNF or LPS or something else? To do it, the authors trained a supervised machine learning algorithm using a technique called decision trees. Decision trees are one of the easiest machine learning algorithms to conceptualize. Uh, let's say a simple decision tree about what to wear when you go out of your house. Are you going out to walk your dog? Well, wear pajamas. Are you going on a date? Yeah, you can wear something sexy. <laughs> that would be a simple decision tree. Here the authors use many such decision trees, something called an ensemble of decision trees, if we put it in technical terms. 
The authors are using this ensemble of decision trees using the six signaling codons to come to a decision about which ligand the cell may be stimulated with and how does the predictive capability of these six codons lines up against using literally every parameter, so all those 900 of the parameters that the authors initially started with. The answer to that at, in simple words, without going too much into the analysis, is that the six codons or the parameters were almost as good as classifying using every parameter together. Um, first, uh, me. So this means the six codons again are packing all the bandwidth you need, or that. So you, if you would be including all those 918, it's just it's not good bang for the buck. You're adding more information, but you're not getting good value out of it. Is that right? That's right. It's a bit like compression, like we mm -hmm. discussed earlier. So I can think of it like trying to paint a very beautiful painting, and you're trying to buy a palette. Right? You can have your primary colors, red, green, and blue. Or you can have a bunch of other things, you know, lavender. I'm, I'm not very good with the variety of different color names. But you can have a, you know, magenta, variety of, you know, different colors, right? But they kind of look similar. Mm -hmm. But you can basically use your three primary colors to be able to paint a whole, a whole, a whole area, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. those are the three key uh, sort of components that you need. All right. Obviously, if you have other shades of those colors, you're gonna have a more precise you know, image, right? You can have more gradients, more variations, but if you look from, a, from afar, it will make a big difference. Mm -hmm. So you can just compress the space down to a, a few colors and you can get most of the information out. Right? This is like, this is like that meme that's like, you did it, you boiled whatever down to its pure essentials. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also the way of doing this, I mentioned a sort of discretization as a way to facilitate computation. Right. If you have to deal with nanometers for computation, it's going to be very difficult to be able to make decisions because there are a lot of different wavelengths that correspond to the same color, basically. So you need the minimum amount of information necessary to make a decision very quickly. Mm -hmm. So if I wanted to give you a direction to the nearest sushi restaurant, for example, I can give you a list of uh, streets and I can tell you the directions to take at each street, turn left at this particular street, turn right at this particular street, you know, walk, you know, this many meters or, or, and so on. Or, or I could, you know, give you very precise instructions. Take one, uh, move your right foot, move your left foot, you know, you know, step one inch to the left, step one inch to the right. That's going to get you there more precisely, perhaps, but it's going to take a lot of information to be able to fully describe that versus something that's more succinct. Hmm. And uh, that's one of the things I like about decision trees because it's sort of like a math class, right? You just can't give an answer. You have to show your work, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So decision trees are very good at showing their work. They will tell you at this particular street, I turned left, at the next street, I turned right. Uh, they're very, very good. So you just need a list of street names and the decision tree will tell you, I, I walked five meters to the left and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, you bring to a good point that uh, there's a lot of uh, machine learning algorithms, but decision trees is one of those which actually lets you visualize it. And yes. so it, it's not something happening in a black box. You know what happened. And it's like discretization, just yes or no, yes or no, 500 times, and you are defining a continuous variable almost. Yeah, that's correct. So it can, it can all even boil it down to be you know, simpler. Do I make a left or right mm -hmm. at the street? 
to make it left to right at this street. And the nice thing about this, it can actually spit out like a text. It's basically a conjunction of commands.、Mm-hmm. You know, do if this is x、uh, if duration is less than five hours, and area underneath the curve is less than eighty units, then I'm gonna be say CPG or something like that.、Mm-hmm. So it actually tells you how it got its answer, and、yeah. it can actually follow through, which is something that's gonna be useful if you're a molecular biologist or you're a biochemist, right? And you're actually trying to do an experiment. That's something that's useful. That's useful information for you. Yeah. In terms of developing your hypothesis and developing an experimental plan. Yeah, I don't want me. This is an amazing result, and I want. I'm curious. Is this analysis as complicated to carry out as it appears here? And what kind of skill set does it take to carry out this analysis? All the dynamical modeling done here so far. It's just like any tool, right? You, the more you use it, the better you are at it. And there are a variety of different tools that you can buy. You know, you can get the fancy professional ones. It's going to be fairly expensive, but it is going to get the job done a lot sooner.、Mm-hmm. So the nice thing about machine learning and AI in general is that a lot of the information that you need to learn is readily available. There, it can. It depends on how you learn. You can get books on it, and then to really learn it really well, you have to. Use it,、hmm. and you can use a variety of different platforms. So there are certain platforms that have a lot of、uh, traffic, a lot of usage. They have a lot of information, a lot of community support behind them. You can use Python, for example.、Uh, there's a lot of community of people who are using Python for machine learning,、uh, specifically when you're doing more、um, neural network type analysis. There's a lot of uh, 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 Python uh, community there.、Uh, you can use PyTorch, for example, but you can also use MATLAB. If you have that available to you, and you can get up to speed a lot quicker, it has a graphical user interface. It has a, an app that you can use. But personally, I had a coding background. I learned to code when I was in high school. I was a computer and information science minor in college, so I had a lot of exposure already、uh, to doing、uh, coding, and I was familiar with、uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence before、uh, my. My PhD work, so it was a lot easier for me to get up and running.、Mm-hmm. But the nice thing is, if you have a, a a very nice dataset and you have some labels available for them, you can load up MATLAB and you can read the documentation and get up to speed very quickly. And you can learn the other details as you go along. Okay. So, did you carry out this analysis by yourself, or did you have another computer scientist in the lab to help you out? I did this by myself. Damn! Oh wow! I was I was a hundred percent sure there is no way, but、uh, you I'm, I can't I'm beyond impressed at this point. <laughs> Dude,、you. this guy's an MPPhD. Yeah, MPPhD. yeah, MPPhD. He's got it all. Yeah, you got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I, I, again, something that all of your ex- experiments depend on is this MVNES mice, right? The the ones、mm-hmm. that let you visualize NF kappa b in real time. So let's say tomorrow. I was to purchase mice that express maybe、um, P38, a MAP kinase, and has some fluorophore attached to it. So would I be able to run similar experiments and get this analysis done? Like, do you think it's possible for like a graduate student to get this done, assuming you have the time to read up on stuff? Yes, actually, that's a very good question that you ask because. There's a postdoc in the Hoffman lab who is doing exactly that. It's a P38 reporter. Well, you know、yeah. Oh my <laughs> god! Yeah, yes. Jatin is gonna scoop this guy. I'm gonna scoop、oh, this、no. guy tomorrow. Just,、uh, yeah, it, 
it's a she actually at uh, Dr. Oh, so Luca. sorry. Uh, no, it's fine. Uh, she she's excellent. So she did not have a computational background, mm-hmm. and she's doing uh, a lot of analysis uh, herself now, and she's doing a lot of imaging. She's applying some of the tools that my uh, co-authors and I uh, developed in this paper, mm-hmm. and she's applying it in that particular context as well. And uh, she's learning very quickly, and I'm able to provide some guidance. But she's very you know self-driven. And with the tools that are available, she's able to get up to speed very quickly and really apply this. She's able to write new modules uh, to our software uh, base and apply it to P38. And there are certain idiosyncrasies of P38 reporter system that you have to account for. Uh, there's different levels of noise. You have to do different normalization. And she's able to like work it out and, and be able to ad- really adapt the Rayleigh and Venus uh, analysis system pipeline to these P- P38. And the interesting interesting thing is that you mentioned earlier is that uh, a lot of different ligands activate NFKB and P38. And you were asking about the different you know, binding sites and, uh, and you can have a combinatorial uh, activity as well. You can have NFKB and you know, P38 machinist uh, dependent uh, transcription factors you know, interact at the same time. So there are some interesting experiments that you can conduct. and. Uh, We'll see some of the findings that uh, she's uh, she's had very soon. That's great. I'm going to ask Ade to send me some of the literature so that I can get up on speed, get that mouse model quickly, and scoop your lab. <laughs> <laughs> there right. are other labs also working on on P P P38 reports. So I'm going to scoop everybody. Yeah. It's just I'm, I'm in the mood today for scooping. It's it's quite super a, scooper jet and yeah. Sharma. <laughs> yeah, the covert lab is working on that covertly. No, <laughs> covertly <laughs> or overtly actually. Overtly. They've, they've published some work on that. Yeah. Before we go into the next figure, let's take a quick break. This is the end for the first part. Tune in next week for the continuation. Mm-hmm.